It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at CBOC.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at CBOC.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. If you are in or getting into the industrial organizational psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking for support to jumpstart your career, blaze your IO path, and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. If you're a more established IO practitioner, check out our expert membership to showcase your expertise, build your brand, and be part of our initiatives. Do you lead a university's IO or applied IO psychology program? Go to cboc.com, get in touch to partner with us to build your program's brand and get solid real world support for your students. Let us do the heavy lifting for their engagement and experiences. And businesses, get in touch. We've got the bank of experts you need for coaching, consultation, and program development and execution. Please subscribe to the podcast because it helps us out and it helps the field of IO. Also, today, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor too. He is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome once again. It is Thursday, and it's time for our weekly gathering of IOs, HRs, recruiters, and one actor who help, like to help people in the world of business by providing great information. And today, Jeremy, we're going to look at facilitating learning of members and creating a culture of learning. Uh, kind of funny, we were having a little chat before you hit the record button about uh, learning with Linda Ann about, boy, there's a lot of people who need training and there's a lot of people who don't think they need training. <laughs> so how do we bridge that gap between, like, I, I sit here every day or every week with you guys, and and this is incredibly valuable, and it's worth its weight in gold. And yes, you really do need to hire an IO. But there's all this training, and still people seem to be a little bit like, mm, I don't know. An interesting, probably the focal article that we'll talk about today is called Demonstrating the Value of an Organization's Learning Culture, the Dimensions of the Learning Organization Questionnaire by Marsick and Watkins. It's a, it's a, it's a short article. It's 20, 21 pages. And they actually developed a questionnaire that organizations can use. It's a, it's a self-report questionnaire to determine what really the, is, is the culture in the organization. It's chock full of so much information. The reference will be in the description on the the podcast. So feel free to take a look. As of this moment, it is available at least on Google Scholar, which means it's available to the public. One of the interesting things that I took away from this is when we look at the the dimensions of how we, we take an organization and make it turn it into a learning culture, which is what we're talking about today, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be formal training. It, it, it's it's in, a, in essence, when you look at a, a culture of, of learning in an organization, it's important to focus on how do you identify the moments for learning? How do you promote the types of discussion? How do you promote the types of autonomy and learning? Because it's really the organizations, it's what I got from the article is in some regards, when you, especially when you take into account human resource departments, and how they have a lot of red tape to cut through. They're often restricted by other reporting positions or lacks of uh, lack of authority. They can't really be proactive. But what they can do uh, are some of the suggestions that we'll talk about today to start a culture of learning in the organization, where you look at the relationships, you look at critical moments, and you look at other things that are identified. And within that, you find out how do we use uh, persuasion and influence to show managers and employees how it's in their best interest and create this open culture of of learning. So it's a different look than what we normally talk about. A lot of times we talk about 
more of the the formal training and we should today but this provides yet another angle for today tom well let me ask you because i'm sure it's a great article and i'll I'll take a look at it later but how do i know if i'm actually in a culture that is a learning culture when i'm at work because there's a lot of organizations who will talk the talk but when it comes down to the frontline workers you know how how do i know whether or not i'm in an organization which is taking this step and if not how do i go to hr and go <laughs> this is something you need to look at tom i know you haven't read it yet cuz we're just sharing sharing it but it's like you read it someone i was talking to someone the other day about the podcast and they say it looks like you guys put so much prep time into these because you, you just and i have to call it out because it's so uncanny that here you ask this question and it's right in here. So the answer to your question, how do I know it's in this article? That's what we do here at CBOC is we provide not only the talk about it, but we provide some, here's some actual things that you can do. Here's a reference. Here's something you can look at. If you're looking at the this PDF, which I shared in the chat here today, if you look on page uh, 143, how do you know if you're if your organization has a culture of learning, this is exactly what this article is. Here are some questions and it shows how to score yourself, your organization, and then how to rate it and how to determine. So for example, there's some questions here. In my organization, people openly discuss mistakes in order to learn from them. And what you do for this particular assessment is you rate it on a scale of one to six, which is interesting. In my organization, people identify skills they need for future work tasks. In my organization, people are rewarded for learning. In my organization, people listen to each other's views before speaking. And there are, it appears to be 36, 46, 56, uh, 62, back that up, 55 questions. The additional uh, questions are some seven demographic questions. 55 really important questions, and they measure everything from what are the systems that are captured that create and share learning? How are people empowered toward toward a collective vision? What is provided in terms of strategic leadership for learning? There is so much in here. There's an assessment. How do you know? And this is something that any organization can use and get an idea of whether or not their organization has a culture of learning. And before I turn it back over, why is it important? These authors, as several others have found, that organizations with a culture of learning have better productivity and better fiscal years. Tom. All right. So uh, I'm going to leave your office, take a few steps down the hall into the HR office to talk to Linda Ann. And and Linda Ann, I've walked into your office and I said, I've had this wonderful conversation with Jeremy. And here is an actual survey we can do to see if we're a learning culture. What is your response to me? Get out of my office. (laughs) Well, I would say that a 55 question survey for that is not going to fly when I'm um, I'm going to have to get it down to about seven to 10 questions to get it to be responded to. So, but I think that that's easily uh, doable. It really depends on what you want to measure as far as the, you know, the the survey and and what you want to get out of it. I think that, and it depends on the, the organization. Sometimes they don't want to know. You know, so you have to make sure that if you provide that survey, and I, and I do this with any kind of survey, the first question I have is, will you use the information? Are you going to take any action? Because if you don't take any action to respond to the information they're provided, you've undermined all your other information gathering tools. So that's the first thing. Do you really want to do something in this arena to move forward? All right, Jeremy, let's go back to you. Because Linda's I, really good at get, Linda, Linda Ann's really good at giving me a hard time. I've waited for over a year to be able to give Linda Ann a hard time. Over a year, I finally found a moment. So I will say that when you look at so the number of the questions, first of all, before anyone and and believe me, Linda Ann, and I, I know that that was your response to Tom. I, I know that you know what I'm going to say. When you look at an assessment that's out there, be careful before starting to break it down. Because when you start to break, this is just a caution for everyone out there. If you find some kind of assessment, because it's been validated with certain psychometrics and they're measuring different things. So 
you might out there decide, well, let's cut it down. I think these questions are important. And then you're measuring not all of what's intended to be measured, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to miss a lot of the important things there. I'll also mention that 55 questions, anyone who's filled out a, I remember like a long, a long time ago, when I mean, people used to fill out in magazines, like these surveys about themselves and people, people like to fill these things out. I think once you, once someone gets into it, the survey, it's almost like reading a book. The first 10 questions, the first 15 questions, I think after that, there is this thing where they start to really get into it. And now their mind is going, and then they're really purposeful about their questions. And then in it, they think maybe I'm going to be heard. So then it just increases their determination to continue to go all the way to the 55. There is that to be said. I get it though. Tom? Well, I wanted to uh, jump on something else that Linda Ann said, and, and that was about why are you doing this? And there's got to be buy-in from the organization that doing something like creating a culture of learning in your organization is going to be profitable. I mean, bottom line, that's the question that most businesses are going to ask. If I, you know, I will take my time and I, I will make sure everyone does the 55 questions, but what's my return on investment? Tom, I'm just going to guess you're throwing that back at me. My response to that is if you, if you just, if you just simply look at the science, look at the data that's out there, uh, I'll actually, I'll read verbatim. I actually, I wrote this question down in bold for today. What are the benefits? And here's just a quick quote. We have seen a correlation between the, the learning organization dimensions and knowledge and financial importance. And what are companies, what's important to them? Financial performance. Because you look at all that's involved in a type of learning organization, you have increased communication, you have increased, and I'm going steal a couple of terms here from the article, inquiry and dialogue. You have more collaboration. You have more team learning. You have more innovation. You have more creativity. You have more systems that are created to capture and also share learning. Now we're talking about uh, transfer of learning. We're talking about sustainability of organizations. We're talking about you know that continuous almost paper trail. What happens if somebody leaves? What has been learned and how can you leave that with the organization? You're looking at more empowerment, collective vision. You're starting to connect the organization closer to the environment in which it operates. I can't, I, mean, I, I, I read it somewhere today. It might've been this article, but Coca-Cola, what does it sell? Sugar, bubbles, and cola. But what what really what does it really sell? It sells connection to customers. How how does it thrive by knowing its target market, by knowing a lot of things? And what is knowing? Knowing knowing is learning. So you're you're actually through these processes and becoming a learning organization, realizing that you can connect your organization deeper to not only your people but also to the scalable environment in which you operate. And I also imagine in this new paradigm that as organizations are moving towards hybrid and remote, that a learning culture, especially the way it allows people to collaborate, is going to be vitally important. So this has implications right across the board. Uh, Maria, let's go to you. Thank you, Tom. Um, I'm having technical difficulties today. <laughs> you know, I I just got off a call. Actually, it was a, a screener, um, part of my capstone for my uh, master's, which isn't for quite some time, will be on um, onboarding and programs that uh, organizations use for onboarding their interviewees for when they're hired. And I think if a person that you're interviewing with can't answer what their onboarding program is from the beginning, it's a red flag, you know, and, and I think you know, I'm going to come to Linda Ann's defense, even though she doesn't need it, because I think HR professionals get, get a bad rap because they're usually guided by the leadership of the organizations. If they could make their own decisions on what programs were available to the organizations, I think organizations would be in a better place because they know what's needed. Uh, but unfortunately, in many cases, that's not the case. Um, the person leading the HR train, if you will, just wants people in and wants people to stay, but they're not looking at what's needed for the organization to continue to be, you know, succinct in, in their re retaining their their um, their employees and not their hiring and just getting them in the door. So 
So I think being able to see from the get-go what that onboarding process is um, and being able to hire to need, I don't often believe in, in my particular world, we hire to need, we hire to seat. And that in and of itself is not conducive to an organization that's going to continue to be fluid in what they're doing. Yeah, I find there's that term onboarding really doesn't seem to be understood by a lot of organizations. But let me ask you, do you think we are, because I know that there is some sort of idea ratio of number of HR professionals in an organization uh, based on the number of employees, but do you think we are making HR's life more difficult because there's not enough people in that HR office that they can't really look after everyone in the organization? Absolutely. And I also think, and I think we've talked about this in past podcasts, is that the silos that are created aren't even being communicated to the HR folks. So how are they supposed to hire to the actual need of the location that they're hiring for, aside from just comparing a resume, an interview to a job description? Yeah, very, very, very true. Dr. Martha, let's go to you. Well, when we think about a culture of learning, we think on the scale of the organization as a whole, right? Because the biggest influencer of the company's culture is the organization itself. But what is an organization but a collection of individuals? And so when you think about the idea of learning, you have to remember that there are some people who are lifelong learners, some people who are um, you know, maybe their their graduation day statement was I'll never learn again because I don't have to. And then there's the rest of us somewhere in between, right? But an organization really needs to know that. They really need to understand who makes up their workforce because for so many years now, people have endured training within organizations that were boring, that were Uh, required, that put you to sleep, that were just something that organization had to check off on a a list of things that that they, they have to prove that they've trained people, but there was no benefit that was evident or obvious to the employee. And they just suffered through this uh, training or a number of trainings, but what did it really result in? Did it make any benefit or give any benefit to the employee or the organization as a whole. So when we talk about a culture of learning, we really have to look at the individuals that make up that company. And I think it would behoove the organization to align with those individuals who really enjoy learning, because I think those are going to be the individuals who help to move the organization towards that culture of learning. And then make sure that what you think of as learning is not just the stuff that you're checking off because it's a requirement by some law or regulation. Let's look at things that actually benefit the company and benefit the individuals within the company. So it's really important that we are paying attention to what exactly are we talking about here? Because if we go to an organization and talk about um, learning or culture of learning, they could interpret that in a number of different ways. And they could just see it as, hey, we've got this list and we're checking it off every year. What do you want from me? Right. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about something a lot more enriching and beneficial, both to the organization and the individual. So that's important. Do we have to do a little bit of a a shift here in our thinking? Because when I hear, hear the term learning, it's, you know, either You have a three-hour seminar, or here's your training book, but there's very little follow-up. And so we don't know how much of that training and learning is being implemented. So do we have to start thinking it more of a process that, for example, if I'm going to hire an IO or work with the HR group, that it's not just what's the training, it's what's the process? What are we going to go through to not only make sure these people learn this material, but it's actually being implemented? Oh, absolutely. Because I think there's so much training out there that is good training, but there's absolutely no follow-up and nobody's using what they learned in that training on the job. So I think, you know, we go from poor training to good training, but then there's nothing beyond once that training session ends, that's it. So what was that training for? 
it was a waste of everybody's time and effort. So yes, it needs to be a process that goes well beyond just that um, official learning uh, part. And it has to be applied at the workplace so that you can see the benefits of what what was this learning about? What was it supposed to provide for the individual and the organization? And chances are, I will see that return on my investment. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you. Well, first, I'd like to um, just comment on Jeremy's takedown. And um, <laughs> and I yes, I do understand the value of the entire survey because I've had people say, well, there's a lot of similar questions. And it's because it's trying to make sure that the information that you gave the first time is actually valid and and so forth. But I've had a number of situations where, you know, like I did a whole leadership, all the leaders in the organization, I did a 360 survey based on Kuznets and Posner's um, leadership evaluations. And I did, you know, I gave them a whole book where it was, all the data was charted and, and all the information. And all I, I get, did it for a couple of years. I got so much flack from the length of that particular evaluation. And even with performance reviews, if I did some kind of, I was constantly being asked to shorten it and shorten it and shorten it to basically, I think they just wanted a net promoter score, you know, um, you like it or you don't. And and so I think that's a challenge in some organizations, um, especially with people being time challenged and, and things like that. So yes, I understand the value of it. I just getting, you don't have any information if you don't get people to take it. So you have to kind of weigh the, the scales on, on what you can do with that. I think that it's important to understand that you can't mandate learning. And there's some new information out I saw in one of the, since I'm doing the, the, the seminar, one of the articles I was reading from Harvard Business Review is how do business, busy people learn um, leadership or whatever. And they have a formula where now they're saying, 10% of learning should be structured. 20% of your learning should be self-reflective. And then 70% should be experimentation. And so, you know, really taking that 10% that you learned in your structured program and then experimenting with it and seeing what works and what doesn't and, you know, do the evaluate and adjust kind of thing. So, again, it depends on the, the organization. I, in particular, think that this is the perfect opportunity for people to model learning, leadership to model learning and saying those questions of, I don't understand, help me understand, um, and setting up the learning opportunities where people teach each other within the organization. Um, so there's a lot of ways to foster that model within an organization. But again, I, I would say if people don't want to come, don't have them come because it's not helpful. Linda Ann, this this article actually supports what you're saying there, especially in terms of the when you look at when you look at training development, learning development operations within organizations, a lot of times they focus and rightfully so on adult learning theory. But all that focus with adult learning theory is much set in formalized training. So when we're talking about a culture of learning, as we started to in the beginning, and as you're talking to in your last comment, it's different. And we can't exactly rely on adult learning theory in the way that we have before with the formalized trainings, because as you, like, as you said, and I can see why 10% comes with that formal learning. Without that, there's no implementation. There's no adult learning in terms of fitting it into examples that have been important or elaborating on that based on life experiences that are meaningful, unless you have, Linda Ann, like you said, that 90% of actually implementing, experimenting with it, learning and being able to able to adjust afterwards. Yeah, I just want to say that, you know, one of the things is usually when you go to a formal learning environment, you know, if everybody says if you just take one thing away, then, then it was success, successful. So that one thing, if you actually use it, then then you've made the learning process worthwhile because that's what you can absorb. So I think it's important to make sure that the learning process is really focused so people can just take one or two or three maybe things away and not overwhelm them with information because that's not, that's not how it's. Teach them less. There's a lot of where we should go into whatever we put together, teach them less. Instead of 10 things, make it three. And just really focus on those three. It's a it's a mantra that in many cases does prove true. So it's just something again. It's things that we we should consider, like Linda Ann saying. Sometimes teach them less and just go focus hardcore at it. 
there's that golden rule of three again. Lee, let's go to you. You know, I think when we're so often companies, you know, in the whole training and development thing, they forget the development part. And and I think that, you know, those companies that actually get away from training development and move to learning and development, uh, I mean, yeah, it's semantics, but it's important because, you know, the connotation is training is I'm teaching you how to take the hammer and hit the nail. And it, it really kind of seems to focus on job task, where if you're going to have a culture of learning, I think it should be more holistic. If you really want the, the, the employees and the organization to buy in, then it needs to be concerned with more than what am I doing when I'm sitting at my desk, my workstation, whatever. And I found a lot of times working with individual employees that the way to get a lot of them motivated to do whatever it was I needed them to do was to focus on things outside of work. So if I can provide you the opportunity to increase your learning and, and to do it in you know, something that you find interesting, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be towards what your day-to-day task is. I mean, yeah, there's some things you need to know and there's we need to have learning to, you know, for the organization. But if I could say, okay, so you're doing great. You're doing all these things. What do you want to do with your life? What is something you want to do? And it's more than just saying, okay, uh, we've got, we've got a fund. So like my company has a flex ed program. So I get a certain amount of money every year that I can use towards whatever training, but it's not just throwing the money at it. It's, I got to give you time to do it. So whatever that may be, do I give you an hour a week? Do uh, do I you know give you a way to to go to a professional conference without charging you PTO? You know what is the way that I'm encouraging you to become more well-rounded and to expand your learning, which makes you you know I would think a better employee because I mean we're we're investing in you, and hopefully that will you know in, in the right cases will encourage you and position you to move up in the organization. But and, and we're and once we've established the culture where we're doing that, it also makes it easier when we have that mandatory stuff we need to do. If every time I say, hey, we got training, everybody goes, you know, then it's not very effective. I mean, when I was in the Navy, we had lots of death by PowerPoint. You know, we had the, you know, mandatory stuff we had to do every year. And it, and often it was the exact same thing. I mean, we could just not even listen. We could just click through it and go to the, you know, the little test. And it was the same questions. I mean, a lot of times people just remembered it was just C, A, you know, whatever. Because it was the same thing. They were checking a box, which on some very important things. I mean, some of this was like suicide prevention, you know, sexual. I mean, these are big things that we really should be putting some emphasis into. And we're all going click, click, click. Because you're not really engaging the people. And and if they're not engaging and they're not really learning, if they're doing it by rote, are they really learning anything? Or if the situation comes up, are they really going to be able to react to it because they know the answer C? Well, that doesn't really help me right now. Yeah, I, I have sat through those trainings where it's either a video or PowerPoint slides. And I like to spend my time watching other people in the room check their cell phones. <laughs> Maybe there's an interesting email. Jeremy, let's go to you. It's, I read somewhere and I think there's a lot of people here that will will know what it is. And for some reason, Brendan, I think you'd know if this is correct or not. But when you look at the whole adult learning aspect, I think you recall it's either five or 10% of what you see in a presentation, something to that. That's it. But when you look at the medical schools, the majority of what they do for their teaching is PowerPoint presentation, because I remember thinking about this and then I remember being scared because what are they really learning in terms of what I need to be operated on? And does there need to be that that kind of change within? Lee also mentioned something important in terms of that perhaps is one of the decisions and it's can can companies do both at the same time, where if you create a culture of learning within an organization, you can, it's almost like do we do, is it important to do that or provide the more formalized, here's a training and then here's uh, an hour to go practice it, or here's some structured ways to go practice it, or can, can it both be done? And this seems daunting. I can see right now, I can see right now a lot of people saying, well, we're just not going to do any of it, but just because it seems like a lot of work and we're going to put it back on the back burner, which it makes, it makes sense because it does seem pretty daunting. And I think our job is to help break it down to some simple things that we can help 
organizations with. I shared again. It was, I just shared an image in the in the chat there, and I'm going to read through those particular dimensions because I think, and I'm being mindful of the people that are listening on audio. This is the kind of thing, and you can find that in the reference. So the reference for what I'm going to share is the Marsic and Watkins 2003 reference. I can see, I can actually see for an organization saying, okay, we're going to go and completely create this organizational culture, these formalized training. It's hard. Like, where do we start? But I can see with these different dimensions that I'm going to share somebody in HR actually saying, or somebody in a, like the, the director of learning and development for a company saying to one of the LMD managers, Hey, Take these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine dimensions and think about them. Ask, turn them into questions for you, for your LD team, and see what we can do. How do we do X? Because we look at this is what was determined as the definitions of constructs for the dimensions of the learning organization questionnaire, which is the article we're talking about today in the questionnaire. So here's a starting point. How do so? Here, here's what it is, and it's very simple. An L and D manager, someone in HR, can answer these questions and then keep going at it. How do we create continuous learning opportunities? And there's definitions which I won't read for time. How do we promote inquiry and dialogue? How do we create systems to capture and share learning? And it could be how do we do this now? Maybe you do it. How are we doing this now? And then how should we be doing this? Or how could we be doing this? And what are the gaps? How do we provide strategic leadership for learning? What are our key results? What are we really looking at in terms of the results of knowledge performance? What should we be looking at? But there are, and I didn't read all of them, you can go, but this is a reference that you can go to. Everyone, it's easier to have a starting point and a starting point based on research, based on people who have looked at things, who have done the back end, what we see in a literature review, all that background work. And then my goodness, these uh, authors created something with all the uh, bells and whistles of the statistical analysis to say, what are the questions that would relate specifically to these dimensions so that we can measure them and make sure that these are the dimensions we want to use. And these are the questions we want to collect that data. So it's a starting point, Tom. At least we have a starting point. Brendan, let's go to you. So, Tom, you had brought up something, and I think Linda Ann was on, touching on it, too, that I, I, I had to make sure I, I brought this up. You were talking about, like, possible evaluation, and then Jeremy was talking about it with adult learning theory, and it's very much, are you going to be able to use this training? And the next question is, is your manager going to support when you fail in your efforts to try to use this training? Um, and it brings me back to, I was doing an internship back in uh, 2015, and I did a webinar with um, Don Kirkpatrick's consulting group. He he came up with Kirkpatrick's learning uh, and evaluation theories, and they came up with this form that they call a hybridized form, where you can get to level four questions, but you don't have to wait six to twelve months to start asking those questions. And I know I'm probably getting to, to very specific terminology for anyone who's outside of the I/O field and isn't familiar with this. But it's getting to those using that training. How do you see yourself using this training a year from now, making your job easier, making your life easier, and making your interactions with your coworkers easier? So you can still get to that level four thinking by asking the questions up front. And one of the other things that Jeremy touched on that I really want to make sure I, I, I also talked about was when you were talking about learning for medical and how they're training effectiveness and they're doing things through PowerPoint. I want to make sure we touch on the concept of overtraining, um, which is something that you will see uh, very specific comes to mind is pilots. Pilots have to have so much training hours so that if something were to go wrong, it's just like, you know, second nature. They just know what to do. It's very quick to um, make the adjustment on the fly. So I think we are talking more about basic level skills training that doesn't necessarily have life or death implications into it. But I do want to stress that when you are getting into more complex things that might be safety related, people might be getting bored with that training. Good. I want you to be bored with that training because if something happens, I want you to be prepared. And I want you to remember 
that you've heard it a thousand times before. Great advice. Amani, let's go to you. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I actually had put my hand up when I had about the questionnaires that uh, Linda Ann was talking about. But for the most part, everything else that I wanted to say almost has been mentioned. You know, the training, um, about training being holistic and then also creating, um, increasing opportunity of learning with with uh, with the people you're training. And um, I, I feel like it should be, yes, it should be holistic from the point where um, you have engagement and then also knowing that we do have different kinds of people that we are training, that those who learn with just with just kind of like looking at graphs or at any animations, those who are learning through reading and then those who are learning through just, you know, talking like presentation, like how we are doing, doing right now. Um, and then there was a question that was asked, how do we measure? And I wanted to also just maybe ask if I'm to be corrected. If we are using observations to really zero down with um, with job descriptions, why aren't we kind of like mentioning observations along training? Like you train if you've delivered with all, with, a, with a whole holistic training, and then get down with observations, and also using something called the CIT interviews. I don't know if any of you know about the CIT interviews. You can also talk about them because I'm always gonna scream it out, like I did last time. And then, um, uh, doctor, I don't know how I'm gonna pronounce that name, but one of the doctors from um, uh, Liz Network. We mentioned about um, having these questionnaires at the end of uh, as as the way of collecting information. I always say it. I'm not even gonna be embarrassed. I'm gonna lie on those questionnaires. Like seriously, gonna lie on those questionnaires. We need to come up with different ways of how we can gather information and how we can see how this training and learning and development is effective within uh, the people we are training. So one has to be holistic. And then I'm just thinking observation should be something that is really underscored here, but it's something that I think kind of learned about it that is mostly, it could be the best way to do job descriptions. So I feel like why couldn't it be also the same way we kind of like observe and then find out if what we train has been effective in this way. Um, that's what I just wanted to say. And maybe if anybody knows about the CIT interviews, you can come through and, you know, save a sister here. Thank you so much. Yeah, Manny, I think you should turn those questions into a book. I think you need to write that. Dr. Mark, let's go to you. I want to go back to what Linda Ann was saying about some of the challenges that HR individuals, HR professionals are facing. I think first and foremost, many companies underutilize their HR departments in terms of what HR professionals are capable of. They give them these um, tasks that are only limited to a certain amount of responsibility in terms of variety of what they can do, and that's it. And so there's there's that. And then there's this disconnect between the C-suite uh, and leadership and what HR is doing and what HR is capable of doing. So I think this is where an IO could really come in and help to bridge that gap and help to promote the HR department within an organization to be utilized to its fullest potential. Because I think that oftentimes that's not what's happening and it is a lot of wasted talents and HR uh, professionals are are having a hard time trying to accommodate everybody, but in so many ways, their hands are tied, right? They're only given so little to work with and allowed so little to do that it's like this wasted talent and, and organizations are suffering and individuals within those organizations are suffering and the HR people aren't happy. So I think there's a lot that could be addressed there. And um, I think IOs do the rescue there. Well, let's just one woman's opinion. <laughs> well, I, I like that because too often I think of IO and HR in competition, not actually on the same team, but maybe that's the way to go. Uh, Linda Ann, were your, were your hands tied at times? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, but but having a little bit of uh, weather behind me and, and experience under my belt, I I often pushed through and did it anyway. You know, and I was a big utilizer of forgiveness, not permission, kind of things. So, <laughs> um, 
but that's hard for somebody who's 28 years old, you know, so it's different. But I think part of the issue there is also that I think human resource professionals underestimate their their vision and their capability and their opportunity. So I think it's a, a situation where that resource, that ability is being underestimated by both sides and underutilized by both sides. The point I wanted to make when I raised my hand, however, is that I think organizations need to step back for a minute and forget about where they are right now and think about what they're going to need in five years. Because to what Maria was saying about companies want to fill the seats and have their employees stay with everything that is uh, evolving in the workforce, in the work environment, and technology, whatever you want to call it, people are hiring individuals with skill sets now, but those skill sets are going to be old in five years. How are you planning to continue to evolve your organization, stay on the cutting edge, both in your industry and keep your employees around? And one of those is through effective learning and and keeping the the process open for people to grow and evolve, you know, because if you don't, you lose two things. You lose your marketing edge and you lose your employees. Yeah. (laughs) Wake up business world. Eva, let's go to you. Hi. I'm wondering if, if the issue is a little bit simpler than what everyone is saying. And I'm wondering because we as humans sometimes are running on a program. We are running on a program about how we see life, how we see the job, how we see, you know, moving forward with our careers. And sometimes those programs, whether it's positive or negative, does not even fit with the organization or the training that we're trying to give to them. So my question would be, how do we get the person out of the program, whether it's the program that is negative, that's a negative impact on the organization, How do we get to change that subconscious thought that's actually really running us to get that person in the right frame of mind to even receive the programming that or the training that we're trying to give them? So I I think sometimes even when I think about my own self, when I'm learning something new and I have to get myself in a position where I'm absorbing the stuff, I set myself up where I hold it in a container. And what I mean by that, and that this could be a little bit of the out-of-the-box thinking, because there's so much stuff in my head going on all day long. I'm answering questions, I'm giving solutions, I'm social media is all over the place, trying to still stay focused. If I don't put this stuff in a container, and what, what I mean by that, if there's a new new information that I've just received, I take my time then and really give it some time to see how it would help me in the next situation. Most people don't think about it in that way. They're like, okay, I just got all this stuff and this new training. Now I'm back to my old programming. So it never gets used anyway. So I guess I would pose the question, how do you get people out of the old programming to even receive something that they can benefit the organization? Great question. Anyone want to jump in? I see Brendan shaking and says, Dr. Martha, go ahead. I have a take on That's where follow-up comes in, right? You brought that up earlier, Tom. If we just stop with the learning, then the individual is, is left to their own devices and their programming. If you want to look at it that way, everybody has programming and it's mostly not good. So that's a whole different show. Uh, but this is where follow through comes in. If you leave them with just something that you threw at them in the form of a training and that's all you ever do with it, then don't expect much. And I see there's some other people who want to get into this conversation. So Maria, then Linda, and then Brendan. Maria, go ahead. Ask forgiveness for the background noise. But uh, quickly, what what Linda Ann said earlier about what the, uh, she read in the article um, from Harvard, it, it's test and try. It's you learn, and then you test and you try. And the only way you're going to know if something's succeeding is if you test it. So they have to incorporate the testing module into the learning. Linda Ann. So one of the things, and this is... Uh, what I've learned to love about online learning is it really gives me the opportunity to stop for a minute, take the information that's being presented at that moment, stop the video, et cetera, and reflect. 
right? That, that's the really important part for me is to reflect and figure out how it fits into my current paradigm of thought. And that's the way I'll remember it is how does it fit into what I already know and how can I adapt that to that thinking process? So for me, that's how I integrate things that I'm learning that are new so that they stick with me and I can use them in the future. Brendan. Uh, depending on what you've trained on, there's the concept of um, you burn the boat that you came in on. So this way, uh, yeah, you're going to have to use the the new training because whatever the old program was is just no longer available. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unless it's a desert island, then don't burn your boat. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy, uh, great conversation again once today. Uh, and we've got some other events coming up. Do you want to talk about those a little bit? Yeah, and before I'll do that, the I, I wasn't at the event last week, but I'm going to guess that that answers some of the question too, what you guys talked about in terms of organizational unlearning and learning. So that would be based on what Ava mentioned, if I'm correct on what Ava's question was. So that was episode 20. The event's coming up next week. We have a super exciting event. And while I'm pulling it up, because I don't recall what it is, I'm going to continue to drag it out just a little bit, Tom, just so I can buy myself some time as my screen loads to tell me that next week, our event is Workplace Mental Models. And that's February 16th, of course, same time, same place. We also have, of course, our, we have our, ooh, next, ooh, tomorrow is our CBOC members game time. We're playing Mind Trap. It's going to be amazing. That's at 12 p.m. Uh, come and try to beat 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 one of us. It's going to be a great time. So that's Mind Trap. If you're a member there, we have our momentum session that's next week. Lots of things going on. Just check out the events page. Linda Ann, could you talk about what you have coming up with Deborah Colazzo in February? Yes, we have a new approach to leadership um, development, and it's on February 22nd. It's in various time frames throughout the country. Um, it's a three-hour workshop, and it applies the model of, you know, the formal structure being 10%, having you self-reflect, and then do some experimentation, evaluation, and adjustment to what you've learned. We're very excited, um, and it's there's pre-work. It's all about developing your particular leadership development plan. And it's it's giving you some education and helping you step through that process because it can be really overwhelming as someone who's trying to develop leadership skills. Lynn, it sounds like it's not just going to be a PowerPoint. Sound, I mean, you've got the Slack group with the the for follow-up. You have a follow-up meeting. You've got the the actual learning process. You have pre-work. Sounds like the full boat. Absolutely. And we're really excited about that process, getting people, they get a full pre, um, pre-session pre workbook that has them do some evaluation and, and um, uh, emotional intelligence evaluation, some leadership information, some real thinking to get them prepped for the session. We'll go through the, the learning process. And then, yes, there's the, the Slack channel that will be open for a week, 10 days. We will man it answering questions, have people networking, and then there'll be a follow-up one week later for questions and answers and sharing of information. Cbuck.com slash events for that ticket. Tom, you have a question? I ask Linda Ann because, you know, I know that you've priced it really reasonably that, you know, individuals, organizations can all afford it, but is there limited seating? Do I need to get my ticket like right away? Um, I don't think that we're at a point of limited seating. I would like to say that we were, but I don't think we're there yet. But yeah, if you know anybody who could use a little bit of a boost and get some structure around where they are as a leader or their um, aspiration as a leader, this is a really good first step. So spread the word and let's uh, let people know about it. Speaking of spreading the word, I also wanted to ask Lee, if you're still with us, um, how are your uh, pop-up events going, the the meet and greets, the marketing? Uh, going really well. It actually kind of exploded in the new year. We've had a uh, really good turnout. You know, it's actually ha- happening this evening, as a matter of fact. And uh, it's been great. Had some really fantastic discussions. We've had a lot of students come in uh, asking some really smart questions of our experienced people. And, uh, of course, repping CBOC, of course, because, uh, you know, we want we want people to, to go down that route. 
Uh, and of course, uh, I've, I've had plenty of opportunities to make Dr. Martha laugh because, you know, that's just part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeremy, speaking of universities, how is that going with CBOC? Yeah. So if, if universities, if you're in, well, first off, again, one of the whole uh, big things that we do behind CBOC is what didn't we have when we were understanding IO, understanding what the field's like, understanding what it is to, like to practice in the field. So if you're a student who feels that you didn't get, if you're a, uh, a grad student who's a grad student now or was, you feel like you didn't get exactly what you needed or you're needing in your university, let your professors know, let your the director of that particular program know that we are able to, as CBOC, we have a university, it's called CBOC for Universities, where we partner with the universities and we have a full boat of doing the heavy lifting for all the engagement, for the experience, for opportunities for grad students to really get a head start in this uh, really exciting field. And also for universities to stand out above the crowd with all the other many, many universities that are now offering these IO programs, whether even undergrad now or on the graduate level. So feel free to reach out and you can always go to, to the site and it says CBOC for universities. Yes, the only thing that I did not learn in university was how to get a job. So <laughs> it's great that, you know, if I'm an I.O. and coming into the industry, there is some of that help here for me with CBOC. Uh, well, Jeremy, I think that is just about it as we get very close to our hour. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? Nope. Just give a rating if you can for the for the podcast and make sure you subscribe. That helps us out. And of course, give an accurate five-star rating because five-star would be the accurate rating just in case anyone needs a little tip there. Other than that, Tom, should I count us out? Count us out. Super. Great discussion as always. Love to see everyone and all the smiles. Counting out in five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seboc.com.